What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the 4040 Vision podcast. I'm your host, Khaled Abdallah, and I'm joined today by one of my favorite people in sports media, Dave Zirin. Dave is the sports editor for The Nation, a weekly progressive magazine dedicated to politics and culture, and he also hosts a podcast called Edge of Sports, which is absolutely incredible. I asked Dave to join us on the podcast to discuss the life and legacy of Jim Brown, who passed away earlier this month at the age of 87. Dave wrote a book about Jim Brown in 2018 called Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. I thought he would be the perfect person to have on to discuss the complicated life and legacy of this legendary athlete. Dave was gracious enough to spend some of his valuable time discussing the life of Jim Brown, his impact on modern sports and athletes, his role in the civil rights movement, his controversial past, and much, much more. This was an absolutely incredible conversation with someone that is an inspiration to me in the world of sports and social justice, and I can't wait for you all to hear it. Let's take a quick break for our sponsors before we jump right in. Hey, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today on the 4040 Vision podcast to talk about uh, the legendary life and complicated life of Jim Brown. So I want to jump right in and I want to start with uh, perhaps the easier side of things to talk about, and that's his exploits uh, as an athlete. So I've recently heard you compare Jim Brown to Paul Bunyan, and I've heard you say that he's the greatest American athlete in the 20th century. So what is it that what is it about him that makes you say that? And what was it about him that made him such a special athlete? Uh, thanks so much for having me, Khaled. Um, first and foremost, I should preface what I say with the fact that Jim Brown did not think he was the best athlete of the 20th century. When I spoke to him about this, he thought without question it was the great Olympian football and baseball player Jim Thorpe. Uh, when I said, well, uh, Mr. Brown, I think you're the best team sport athlete in history. He again looked at me like he was suffering a fool. And he said, no, it's Bill Russell. Of course, Bill Russell was one of Jim Brown's closest friends. So maybe a little bit of bias there. But his reasoning was interesting. He said, look, 11 championships. That's the whole point of team sports. And that's what he accomplished and no one else has. So therefore, Bill Russell's the best. Now, I think Jim Brown was the greatest team sport athlete or even athlete of the 20th century, precisely because he was able to excel in so many different arenas, arenas who oftentimes there's not a lot of great crossover between sports. Like, like my my son is a quarterback and he tried out for baseball this year. And let me just tell you, the skills did not immediately translate the football to baseball skills. So that's just a reality of team sports. And yet in Jim Brown, we have somebody and frankly, the only person who is in the conversation as the greatest ever in two different team sports. And I'm, of course, talking about football and what was Jim Brown's favorite sport to play, Mm -hmm. uh, lacrosse. But it's not just about football and lacrosse, the exploits of which are well known. Uh, It's also so it's and it's also not just about Jim Brown being 6'2", 6'3", 240, who could run a sub 4'5". And when I say a sub 4'5", also, we got to remember, this is an era where cleats were made of like steel and they're running (laughs) on dirt. You know, so all of these times you hear from back then, it's always like because, you know, everything we have now is, uh, if not chemically, at least uh, uh, from an equipment perspective, these are enhanced times that we live in in the 21st century. So so I mentioned lacrosse and football, but let's also talk about other sports for a second. Like he scored, uh, I think he definitely scored over 50 points in a high school basketball game. And. Uh, It was said he scored over 50 points in a Syracuse game, too. He definitely quit playing basketball at Syracuse uh, because they had a quota of the number of black athletes they would allow on the team Mm -hmm. at any given time. And that for him was utterly unacceptable because it meant, and this is a common theme in Jim Brown's life, that they were treating him like a boy and not a man. And he would not accept anything other than being treated like a full-blown man. Not human being, but man. You know, and that's that's an important distinction that we can talk about if you like. But let's talk about other things for a second. Like Jim Brown was asked to compete in an NCAA decathlon event. He had never practiced the decathlon uh, individual events. He came in fifth. He was asked to train for the 1956 Olympics. He was asked to try out for the Yankees in a personal letter from their manager, Casey Stengel. The man did not play baseball. 
He was asked if he would sign a contract to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world. Of course, boxing in that in that department. Uh, it was I read I found one article in doing my very 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 deep dive research on Jim Brown. I found one article that talked about him sort of you know meandering onto a cricket field and being the best cricket player. I mean, so you're talking about somebody who, if you put Jim Brown in sports in the same arena, he was the best. He was the baddest MF. And to me, the fact that he was able to excel in all these different arenas and is the, in the conversation as a best ever in two different sports is what makes him, at the very least, in the conversation as the greatest athlete in the history, at the very least, of the United States. Yeah, you can definitely put him on that Mount Rushmore. I think of him, Jim Thorpe, Bo Jackson, maybe throw Deion Sanders in there as guys that were able to excel in, in, two, in two, at least two sports. And the most um, so impressive – I'm so sorry, but I have to say that the most impressive number related to Jim Brown, just like to me, the most impressive number with regards to Serena Williams, for example, is 27. That's how many years she played in pro tournaments. Like, holy crap, 14 to 41. Um for Jim Brown, the most impressive number is zero. That's how many games he missed in the NFL. Zero. And this was at a time where he was a part of 60% of the Cleveland Brown offensive plays. And this was also a time in the NFL where what went on at the bottom of tackle piles, I mean, wouldn't have been out of place in a Turkish prison. I mean, people stomping your ankles, stomping your nuts, stomping your wrists. And Jim Brown's technique, and I spoke to him about this in the face of that, was he said he made sure no matter what had happened, he got up very slowly as if he was hurt. So nobody would know if he was hurt or not. And that would frustrate defenders to no end. There's some some definite brilliance there. So what was it about football that made him choose that as his career path over, you know, lacrosse or being a, a decathlete or any of these other exploits that he was interested in? Well, certainly uh, you have to start with, you know, no real career prospects in any of those other sports while football held the chance for fame money. I mean, he was somebody who was raised uh, in another family's home. His mother, uh, Teresa Brown was a domestic worker in great neck, New York, and they lived in the home where that she cleaned. So, you know, this is, you know, this is not someone who came from wealth in any sense of the word, although he went to an affluent high school, because of where his mom was a domestic worker, which is an interesting to me. And that's how he got people sometimes asked, like, how did this man, a black man in mid-century America, become this great lacrosse player? Well, it was from growing up in Long Island, which is a huge lacrosse. Yeah, because lacrosse is a very elite sport, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, that's at the high school he went to, that's the uh, memory of him that's there is a signed lacrosse ball. Um, but Jim Brown in high school also averaged, gee, 15 yards a carry rushing over the last two years that he was there. So why did he choose football? I mean, he chose football largely because he had a high school coach named Ed Walsh, who was really, in many respects, one of two father figures that Jim Brown had. Two, two white men of great standing in the Great Neck, Long Island, Manhasset community. Uh, and one of them, a man named Judge Kenneth Malloy, uh, Judge Malloy went to Syracuse, and that's a whole story in and of itself, excuse me, in how, in how it was facilitated that he went to Syracuse, becoming the second black player to ever play for their football team. But it really was his football coach, uh, Ed Walsh in high school, who was only 145 pounds, who was a very different kind of coach than you might imagine a mid fifties football coach, like much more of a nurturing presence than the sort of like, this is the army, you know, kind of thing. So that I think is what attracted him to football is, you know, the prospects of wealth, uh, the prospects of getting out, the prospects of fame, uh, also the prospects of doing something that uh, he excelled at, which was expressing uh, physical violence and fury uh, through sports. He was distilled fury. And, you know, even if that didn't match, you know, friends of his have, have hated that uh, description because they said that's not who he was, like some raving, angry person. And, you know, some people have said, well, I've seen other instances that, that actually 
uh, show that he could at times be completely sure, captured sure. by anger. But and I certainly have stories in my book, like firsthand accounts of, you know, when he had to deal with like a racist on the golf course, a racist waiter in a restaurant, um, a racist person pushing him too hard for an autograph or even a non-racist person pushing him too hard for an autograph or situations when dealing with the women in his life where that fury would come to the surface and that anger would come to the surface. But, uh, but when it came to how he would operate in the locker room, man, they described him as a, a, his friends anyway, as a very cool customer. And there's a lot of evidence of that as well. You know, like many of us, he could be different people at different times. And I think it's also fair to say that Jim Brown is the template for people like LeBron James uh, Jim Brown was the first modern superstar athlete, black, white, what have you, you know, and I, I put him at a level ahead of people like, like Babe Ruth, for example, you know, some people would say Babe Ruth's the first modern superstar because, you know, he was in movie reels and he was famous and he made money. That's not what a modern athlete is. A modern athlete is somebody who uses the fact that they're the people who people pay to see to flex power in the organization. And that's was Jim Brown was the first person to do that. He got Paul Brown fired. Paul Brown, a, a, a minority owner of the team at the time, and obviously the person who the Cleveland Browns are named after. Yeah. <laughs> and Jim Brown got him fired because uh, he didn't like the way he was running the offense and didn't like the way he related to the players. Uh, he never, ever, and there's no evidence that Paul Brown held any racial animus. Uh, Paul Brown was actually one of the first integrators into the NFL during the color line, but he was very much that kind of top-down authoritarian, you know, not not what we would call today a player's coach. Sure, and sure. he had a tendency to release people who Jim Brown really likes. So, <laughs> and Jim Brown was not above going in and demanding that players who'd been released get re-signed and having that happen. Jim Brown also, as part of this, he insisted, and of course he had the gravitas to do this, that the players on the team wore suits and ties on the road. So, so, cause he was like, we need to be taken seriously as men. We need to be taken seriously as businessmen. We're not just people who are out there to entertain the masses. Now that's a very modern mindset. You know, you think about, you know, athletes today speaking about being moguls, speaking mm-hmm. about being owners of teams like LeBron aspires yeah. to be, like Michael Jordan. And each player kind of being their own brand, right? Yes. Yeah, that, that's actually a very interesting idea because Jim Brown was like amidst the black freedom struggle in the pre-branding period of our culture. So it's that 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 sliver of a moment before the system realized that, like, wait a minute, we can really monetize some of these black athletes. Like, you don't get that till I think the 1970s, post Ali, post black athletes revolt. And that's one more point that I think we have to say is that Jim Brown, it wasn't just the expressed pride and black pride as a player and gave uh, black athletes of the next generation a sense of that pride and power. Uh, Jim Brown also started the Black Economic Unions, which were an effort to connect athletes and cities to small businesses to build this base of economic power. Now, that didn't last very long, but it was very influential. And I would make the case that you don't have the revolt of the Black athlete in the late 1960s and early 70s without Jim Brown. And without the revolt of the Black athlete, you don't get Kurt Flood. And without Kurt Flood, you don't get free agency. And without Mm -hmm. free agency, you don't get many, many millionaire athletes. And the whole, I guess you would call it the whole top of the bottle of all this wealth that was being hoarded by ownership, opening up, unscrewing the top of that bottle. I mean, Ali deserves mad credit for it. Tommy Smith and John Carlos deserve mad credit for it. But they get the credit for it. Jim Brown rarely does. And that's actually something we, we can talk about is because of Jim Brown's personal failings, I would argue. It's obscured, I think, some of the incredibly influential uh, parts of our society that he was involved in and that he tried to change, whether it was the NFL, whether it was economics, whether it was Hollywood, whether it was gangs. Like he, 
used his will and his intellect to try to change the arenas, these arenas to make them more equitable uh, for black people, but not nearly the lionization because of these personal failings. Like to me, Mm -hmm. one of the most uh, poignant moments that really, and maybe poignant's not the right word, but one of the most clear moments of this was seeing his dear friend, Bill Russell, front row for President Obama's 2012 inauguration and noticing that Jim Brown wasn't there. Barack Obama was the first president since, I think, Nixon, maybe Lyndon Johnson, who Jim Brown did not get a personal audience with. That's Obama we're talking about. And that's how generally toxic a lot of people in power started to see Jim Brown. Not everybody, of course. Donald Trump Mm -hmm. reported Jim Brown. But it, it's it's just, but that in and of itself says something too, you know. It's the whole get in where you fit in mindset a little bit. Where Jim Brown was like to Obama, like, "Oh, you don't like me? Like bleep me? Well, bleep you. I'm gonna go hang out with <laughs> Donald Trump." But also, Trump promised money for some of Jim Brown's program to gang. Not I shouldn't say anti gang, but gang interventionist programs. I don't think that money was ever given, at least not to my knowledge. Um, I feel like I would have heard if it was, but it, yeah, it's, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're talking about Donald Trump here. My goodness. <laughs> you know, right now he's somewhere trying to sell somebody a watch as we're having this conversation. So that, 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 that has to be part of the Jim Brown conversation as well is that he accomplished a great deal that we simply don't talk about. And yeah. that to me is a shame. I've said this on a lot of shows is like, but I think I'm going to repeat it here on 4040 because it's so important that we do not dismiss the life of Jim Brown, but it's also so important that we do not genuflect towards the life of Jim Brown. We have to understand Mm -hmm. the life of Jim Brown because there are so many lessons by which we can learn. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that you discussed was how, you know, he realized, I think he was perhaps one of the first to realize that, you know, people are coming to games to see me. Fans are coming to see me. My face is marketable. They're cheering for the name on the back of the jersey just as much as they are for the front of the jersey. And because of that, I have power to, you know, make decisions and and move the needle in different ways. And I wonder if some of that had to do with, you know, one thing I've always been fascinated with was his transition from football to Hollywood and acting. And what was it that prompted that? Was it his own decision to, you know, save himself from football and the the beating he's taking and realizing that, you know, I'm a marketable person and I can capitalize on the fame that I've created through football in other ways? Yeah. I mean, first of all, he was recruited (laughs) to be a movie star. I mean, he was famous. He was handsome. We were in a period where Sidney Poitier was becoming a famous and bankable star. And Jim Brown was was seen as like as one person put it at the time, like he's going to be uh, the black John Wayne. Unfortunately, Hollywood at the time was also really racist. And so there was a ceiling to how high Jim Brown could go. But we'll get to that, I'm sure, in a little bit, like the inner workings of the Hollywood that Jim Brown tried to navigate, which were even far more treacherous than even the National Football League. But. He acted in one offseason, I believe the film, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the film, but it was a Western and he did well with it. Was it Dirty uh, Dozen? No, no, no. Dirty Dozen oh. was, the, was the next film. Uh, okay. So he had already sort of established himself and gotten a foothold uh, at that time. And, um, you know, as I'm talking to you right now, I, I'm so darn curious about the name of that film. I'm, I'm looking it up a little bit, but I'm going to stay. Uh, Rio Conchos. I just yes. I just pulled it up Thank on Wikipedia. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That that was the film. And uh and and it did well. And then he was recruited to do the Dirty Dozen. Now, um for him, yeah, this was gonna be the transition transition from football to, to Hollywood, but he saw it as something that could link itself arm in arm. Another very revolutionary thought, if you think about it. Like he was saying, I'm more than an athlete, I'm gonna be this guy too you know, ahead of its time for sure in, in that. Approach. Isn't that the name of LeBron's company more than an athlete? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I yep. mean, that, that, that's what it's all about, man, about us being uh, defying what this country, the boxes this country tries to put us in. It's like uh, 
James Baldwin said, and I always think about this with regards to a lot of these athletes from this era. He said, America is a country devoted to the death of the paradox. It's like everybody's got to be in a little uh, a square peg in a square hole. And Jim Brown was, was, was too big for the NFL. Uh, so he's filming The Dirty Dozen. He's 29 years old. Everybody knows The Dirty Dozen is going to be a big hit, starring huge stars like Lee Marvin. They're filming in Europe. And now here comes Art Modell, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, to say that, to assert his will basically over Jim Brown and say, football comes first, not Hollywood. Get your ass back from Europe and come to training camp or I'm going to fine you. I think it was like five bucks a day or 10 bucks a day, like some just obnoxious sum. And Jim Brown, and this was in Time Magazine, Jim Brown read from a speech on the Dirty Dozen set, retiring, and saying that he, again, here's that word. He was saying that he was not going to be treated as anything less than a man and therefore would be retiring from pro football at age 29. Uh, He wins MVP his last year in the league. That's his third MVP. Frankly, he should have won more than three. He led the NFL in rushing eight times in nine years, for goodness sakes. Um, But... That was his end, and the Dirty Dozen uh, did catapult him into Hollywood. And what he quickly found in Hollywood, it was such a time in flux in Hollywood. I, I think one, I just, I'll just say one last thing uh, about this particular period, about what made Jim Brown so important to Hollywood. There's a film critic named Donald Bogle, uh, who's a, uh, a black man who was interviewed by Spike Lee, for the, his documentary about Jim Brown called Jim Brown All-American. And Donald Bogle said, Sidney Poitier was the first black movie star. Jim Brown was the first black movie star with a penis. And <laughs> what he was trying to say was yeah. that, you know, you I'm a big Sidney Poitier fan, but like they were scared to make him romantic in the late 60s, even in films where he had a wife or girlfriend, like Patches of Blue, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner?, there was a particularly in interracial relationships, there was a fear to make him that kind of love interest. Jim Brown, you know, coming into Hollywood, sexual revolution, both on screen and off, was there to do was 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 there to have sex and express himself sexually as part of his movie persona and his real life persona, but his movie persona, that was new for a black actor to be able to do that. And it should have laid the template for him to be the black John Wayne. Instead, it made him a mainstay of black exploitation cinema, which in the 1970s seemed like the only thing that Hollywood, white Hollywood could do with black masculinity was say, let's make these cheaply made films. Some of these films are cult classics today. Like I could watch the Mac right now and be very happy. But a lot of these films, if we're being honest, are very shoddily done. Uh, A lot of them are in horribly poor taste. A lot of them are terribly misogynistic. And so the money and the screenwriting and the infrastructure to make good films with black men, -uh. nah, it just wasn't there for Jim Brown. And even his force of will could not change Hollywood in that regard. Yeah, there was that that line between being hypersexualized and but not being able to be sexualized in the context of white America. And I believe he had the first ever interracial love scene in a major Hollywood film. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, with Raquel Welch in 100 Rifles, uh, which was a, a big hit at the time. That love scene was incredibly controversial at the time. Hell, Jim Brown's, this is how, how this epic this love scene was. Jim Brown's conversate writing about that love scene in his book, Out of Bounds, which I believe came out in 1989, his memoir, that was about as controversial as the scene itself, like the detail with which he talked about it. And then Raquel Welch pretty much calling BS on Jim's description of the love scene in the documentary about Jim Brown, Jim Brown All-American, was also controversial. So the reverberations of that love scene really did last decades, even if we don't speak about it necessarily in 2023. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think one common thread I've seen from uh, your comments on on Jim Brown and just from everything that I've read about his life was the the common theme of self determination, 
And we've seen it from our conversation about how his decision to leave football, um, his decision to pursue an acting career. So how did this philosophy of self-determination and, you know, you're going to treat me like a man at, at all costs, how did that translate to his approach to the civil rights movement and his, his philosophy to that? I know it's a big question. Great. No, 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 no. But, it's the right question because it's the question nobody's asking and nobody's trying to answer. And it makes us so weak about history when we don't try to answer these questions because I see a lot of commentaries about Jim Brown where they're like, wait a minute, he stood with Ali, but then sat down with Donald Trump. What kind of sellout was that? Or wow, he really switched his politics. Jim Brown never switched his politics. He was a consistent political thinker, whether you agree or disagree with these politics he was a consistent political thinker for decades and decades. And that consistent political thought line and through line was what he referred to as green power, you know, and green power and that concept of green power. Of course, I mean, money, not environmentalism. Yeah. That concept of green power was a part of the black freedom struggle. It just was. And people don't like to talk about this, that in the black power movement, there was a right wing and there was a left wing. The left wing was like the Black Panthers and Huey Newton and uh, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement. That was the left wing, very influenced by socialist politics, very influenced by Marxism. The right wing was about how do we build up our capitalist base? Forget politics, forget integrationist aims of the civil rights movement. How do we build up our community? as a way to make us an economic force. Jim Brown talked to me and wrote a lot about admiration, as he put it. I think this is too, I think I have issues with this uh, historically, but he was like, why can't we be like the the Jews? Uh, Jewish people were able to build up their wealth and their base. Um, I would also point out that Jewish people built up their wealth and their families through being part of union movements in the turn of the 20th century. (laughs) A part of that too about how families uh, rose out of poverty and early immigration, but that's less important. Uh, What's more important is that Jim Brown was a part of the black freedom struggle, was a part of the black power movement, but represented a wing of it that we don't necessarily talk about. So when people say, how could he endorse Richard Nixon? It's like, well, Richard Nixon was giving speeches about black power. They were right wing speeches, but they were speeches that said, we need to welcome this slogan because it means people embracing capitalism and embracing America. So Jim, so Richard Nixon was actually trying to build that right wing uh, of the black power movement. And Jim Brown uh, was a part of that, but because, but we have to remember he was a wing of black power, not separate from it. So Huey Newton saw Jim Brown as a, as a dear friend. They would talk for hours and Jim Brown spoke at Huey Newton's private funeral. And tragically, there's no video of what he said or audio. I, I looked, believe me. But he was one of the speakers there. And so, so that, that, that speaks to um, a diversity of thinking and solidarity and flexibility, while at the same time being very firm in his own beliefs as to what would push society forward. And that brings us back to Hollywood, if you don't mind. Because when Jim no, Brown... Sure. When Jim Brown uh, was in his late 40s, he was like, you know, he saw Hollywood changing a little bit, you know, and this time we're in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And he came up with uh, this idea of starting a film company with Richard Pryor. Um, Now, the film company imploded very quickly. The only film they ever made, they were called Indigo Pictures. The only film they ever made was Richard Pryor's uh, concert film, uh, Here and Now. Uh, but they had the opportunity to do Purple Rain and passed on it. And I think the story of them passing on Purple Rain uh, and that led to their eventual breakup um, is instructive because Jim Brown's pretty much pushed Purple Rain away because the producer and director and all that, they didn't want to hire black people behind the cameras. And Jim Brown said, if we're going to be a film uh, uh, company and do it differently, then we can't just be about faces in front of the camera. We have to be about behind the camera, too. Now, as I say this to you right now, that sounds admirable and laudable and like, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's right. That's how it should be done. But I, I went back and read newspaper accounts at the time. Richard Pryor was like, no, 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 no. 
No, no, no. That makes us sound prejudiced. That makes us sound anti-white. And the media at the time was like, are you saying you won't hire white people? Isn't that a form of reverse discrimination? And it was Is this conversation cool. happening back then or is this a 2023 conversation? <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I know, right? That's that's very true. I mean, maybe I'm being so naive, but I at least hope there would be people today who would be like, damn right, there should be people behind the camera, you know? But back then it was like the media was like, oh my God, Jim Brown's a racist. He doesn't want white people working for his company. And it led to their disillusion. Now it also has to be said, Richard Pryor was very unwell at this time, was just getting out of the hospital for the infamous freebasing incident where he set most of his body on fire. I mean, it was just a horrible time, frankly, for both men for different reasons. So I can see why it didn't get off the ground. They also very much differed politically, you know, and that's just the reality of the situation. But the mere fact that Jim Brown was trying to try something this audacious is so similar to his work in the black economic unions is so similar to him meeting with Richard Nixon in 1968 is so similar to him trying to squeeze money out of Donald Trump in 2008. There's a through line there that I think people are hesitant to grasp. Yeah, just two more questions. I want to be respectful of your time. So one thing I've, I'm curious about is – so I, I just uh, did an interview with Professor Silka Maria Weinick about Joe Lewis, and uh, we talked a lot about how he was perceived by white America. So the, I guess the question about Jim Brown is what was the perception of him – by the general public, by white America. I mean, maybe the different phases of his life, but mm-hmm. I guess during his peak, his prime as an athlete, as an actor, how was he perceived by, by white America? Well, first of all, uh, Professor Winnick, uh, uh, their writing on Joe Lewis is so brilliant. And I didn't know that uh, she was on the show. That That's amazing. Uh, so awesome. <laughs> Thank you. She was um, great. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jim Brown was not funny like Muhammad Ali was funny. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Jim Brown was much more in the tradition of Bill Russell, which was, you don't like me, bleep you. Mm-hmm. you he know? always seemed very, very regal and almost almost royal in a sense yes. with the way he carried himself. And oh, and Bill Russell as well. And that, that mm-hmm. sense of, yeah. of regality in a country that's with so many roots in white supremacy – that didn't always go over well, to put it mildly. But it was always this question of where politics were in this country. You know, like the, the, there were times where, you know, white America absolutely could not stand Jim Brown. There were times when there were generational shifts and people were like, that's the baddest MF on the planet. We love Jim Brown. And then um, it was like people, when he got older, and particularly when he started doing the work around uh, the incredibly important work around intervening in gang life, both inside and outside of prisons uh, with Can, which as one person said to me, was kind of like an Alcoholics Anonymous for gang members, uh, which is one way to describe it. It also provided jobs for people to, to train other young gang members in how to disengage from the worst parts of the life. Uh, Jim Brown, I mean, was not liked. He, he wore the red, black, and green kufi for many decades. He was trying to make a statement as to what, as he might, his solutions might have been seen by some as centrist or whatever, or politically too flexible, but his position in terms of where he stood was really unwavering. And I'll just say this about the gang stuff. Like people don't re- I don't think people appreciate nearly enough. They're like, oh, Jim Brown worked with the gangs in Los Angeles. Jim Brown devoted his home to people, people like Bloods, Crips, whoever. His home was the hangout spot seven days a week in the West Hollywood Hills. And if he had to, even in his 60s, wrestle somebody to get respect, he would do that. In his 60s, that was in Sports Illustrated. I'm not making that up. I'm not just hearing that from someone who's like, I love Jim Brown. This was Steve Russian from Sports Illustrated who was there in the room when these two, like this young kid and Jim Brown are rolling around on the floor. I mean, he, he, he got, he had respect. Uh, I spoke to one guy, he called him the, uh, he called him the shot caller. You know, there, there's no greater compliment, you know, and 
a shot caller. No greater compliment. And I don't think people nearly appreciate how anti the anti-gang hysteria in the United States in the 1980s. Daryl Gates was seen as a hero, the infamous LAPD police chief. Uh, Colors, the movie, was out. You know, uh, the, the beginnings of the rap music that people said was actually the cause of the growth in gangs and the anti-rap music hysteria existed not just in the white community, but the black community as well. I remember living in New York City as a kid and seeing Reverend Calvin Butts drive a a bulldozer over uh, rap CDs and uh, not CDs, uh, cassettes and records, you know, in this big public, mm-hmm. thing. you know, and, that, and that was the, the Reverend Calvin Butts at Abyssinian Baptist church, the most important black church, maybe in the United States, you know, and uh, outside of uh, Atlanta, of course. And um, so, so, so he took that stand at a time where, it would only earn him at the very best mistrust and at the very worst abject derision. And he could not give a shit. And he, he rarely did give a shit. <laughs> right. uh, so you touched on this a little bit. And I know this is probably the, the most difficult topic when it comes to, to Jim Brown about um, so how some of the allegations um, of violence against women have impacted his, his life and legacy and how people perceive him so can you expand a little bit on that and i I mean mean, we don't need to go through the whole sordid history but how has these repeated allegations affected his his legacy and and the impact that he's been able to have you know on on this country well you know it's interesting a lot of people in public life have scandals and then move beyond them and they become footnotes in their lives with jim brown the accusations of violence they start publicly Anyway, in terms of like people going, to, women going to the authorities, 1964, maybe 65. I think it's 64. The last one that was public was in 1999. So you're talking 35 years of charges that would come up. And so, of course, that's going to affect your ability to be embraced by certain sectors of this country. And when you're Jim Brown, there are other sectors of this country that wouldn't embrace you even if you were a monk. So he put himself in a position of limiting the allies that would come to him and link arms with him. And he was also very much a loner in many respects. Like he might have started organizations, but he he was not somebody who needed people to link arms with him in his own mind. So that put him in a state of political isolation that he did not – that he he deserved to not have in some respects. But in other respects – like violence against women, like, like admirable men who are admirable in some, in many parts of their lives who did horrible things in their personal lives that today we find abhorrent is such a feature of 20th century fame and manhood. And I think as a society, we really are wrestling with what we do with the cultural, artistic, political products of people who in their personal lives did terrible things, especially people who in their personal lives allegedly did horrible things and then didn't do some kind of big mea culpa, Barbara Walters interview. Like, cause for Jim Brown, honestly, he felt like that would be demeaning to ever apologize for anything he did because he frankly didn't see anything he did as something worth apologizing for. He saw it much more as a case of being railroaded as a a political black man. But, you know, that expression, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're out to get you. Uh, Just because there were people absolutely trying to railroad Jim Brown doesn't also mean that there was a lot there. And it it really does go to that question of masculinity that we were talking about before, because masculinity, I mean, can can stray into toxicity very easily. And I think we're only really reckoning with that in the last several decades, honestly, as far as, you know, Mm -hmm. this idea of being a man, you know, be a man, you know, man up and all that stuff is not something we need to be saying. It's actually something that leads us often in very uh, difficult and toxic directions. Yeah, especially with that combination of fame and money that he had. And I think I, I saw one of the obituaries for, about him that said that, you know, the same person can be a villain in one story and a hero in another. And I think it speaks to what you said about our consumption and how we can 
we kind of have to compartmentalize, especially with these famous men that have done some terrible things in their personal lives, but have also done great things in their public lives. And it's okay to have that contradiction when it comes to their legacy and things like that. So um, I know you spent a significant amount of time with him as, as part of your book. So what was some of your, your takeaways from spending some of that, that up close and personal time with him as a person? Did he seem, you know, regretful about anything or apologetic about anything? I know probably not <laughs> given one what thing. we've talked about, but yeah. one thing to be honest. Um, and first of all, just so, People are clear, and so no one thinks I'm putting on any sort of airs. Like, I spent a very short but extremely intense time with Jim Brown. I basically stayed at his house for a week. Uh, he's, I, I didn't basically, I did. I, I slept in the pool room underneath the pool. Um, and, you know, he had this incredible deck with a pool where you could see all of Los Angeles from the West Hollywood Hills. And uh, he, he'd lived there for, for decades. Um, and had many different lives living there too. Like he's, he's a father of two teenagers when I, when I was there, um, at age 77, two young teenagers. And it was once one of the most infamous bachelor pads in Hollywood. And it was, it, this is the same spot. And, uh, Jim Brown, the way it worked is, you know, he was older, you know, he, he, he slept, he played golf and I pretty much just hung out. And when he wanted to talk, he came out to the pool and we would talk for a couple hours and then he would leave. So I sort of just made myself on call for a week for whenever he wanted to talk. And regrets, no, absolutely not. Except for one thing, he deeply regretted to the point of tearing up about the breakup with Richard Pryor. Like that was a friendship that he clearly valued greatly. And Richard Pryor this says, frankly, more about Richard Pryor. Like, and I, I write about this in the book. I, I like I spoke to Richard Pryor's biographer and tried to get deep into it because Richard Pryor left that relationship angry. Like, you know, Jim Brown, this person who, in one of his comedy specials, he credits with saving his life. Uh, you know, and a lot of people were posting that footage of Richard Pryor's monologue about Jim Brown saving his life when he, after he set himself on fire. Uh, with the freebasing and and it ended with him saying bleep jim brown and saying i'm armed if he ever tries to come get me you know or stuff like that and for jim brown that was just like whoa you know (laughs) i just wanted to make a film company with you i love you man like what's going on here and so the fact that the breakup was so bitter still hurt him greatly decades after the fact i found that really interesting because somebody who'd certainly offended his share of people over the decades. You know, some people who deserved it, some people who didn't. The regret came back to Richard Pryor. And I think this stuff runs really deep. You know, he was raised entirely by women until he was like eight years old. When his mother finally sent for him after eight years, he never called his mother mom. Uh, That was always reserved for his great grandmother. She was always Teresa. You know, they had an extremely stormy relationship. Uh, and he spent a lot of time living in high school with the family of his girlfriend. I mean, it was just, it was very, very ugly. So these relationships with men meant a great deal to him, uh, formatively. And you think about Richard Pryor, somebody who, one of the few people who Jim Brown would have seen as an equal, given his stature, and that it, it ended so horrifically, not just poorly, that uh, you could see why it hurt. When you spoke to him about some of the maybe darker periods of his life, some of the allegations that have come up, what was the prevailing sentiment that you got from him? Was it, you know, what was that? Four words. Four words. (laughs) I got four words. Sure. Violence against women. Shit. Shaking his head as if he could not believe that we were talking about it, you know, in his mind, and, and truthfully, yeah, decades after the fact. You know, the last time he'd had to address it publicly was in 1999. So, you know, and I'm talking to him in like 2014, 2015. So it, it, he just could not believe that that was still sort of hanging over his head. Uh, and the reason, and you know what? I can't even tell you honestly that I would have raised, he's that intimidating. 
Like, you know, that I, I wasn't confident. And people around That's him. That's understandable. <laughs> people were around him were saying to me, yeah. do not ask him about that. So I'm getting a lot of pressure to not go there. But when I was there, that's when the Ray Rice situation, the video of the Baltimore Ravens linebacker uh, punching his then fiance, uh, Janae Palmer, uh, was in all the news. And there were several columns, including in the Cleveland papers, when I was there saying that the Cleveland Browns, in the name of our new post-Ray Rice consciousness about violence against women in the NFL, should sever all connections with Jim Brown. And he... Like people were telling me, don't ask him about it. And then he walks into the room and he's holding the newspaper with the article and throws it down. So that's like, how am I not supposed to be like your thoughts? <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, he had, he was just like, he just couldn't believe it because he saw a lot of it as complete and utter unadulterated BS. Yeah. And it, I think, what's probably going to happen just like with a lot of historical figures is some of these details are going to get muddied and we're just going to be able to look at his stats and appreciate him as an athlete. Um, yeah. But obviously it's, it's so much more complicated than that. I'm glad um, you used that word because it's a controversial word and I agree with it. And I, 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 I want to be really clear about this, like violence against women. And I know you agree is not complicated. It should never happen. But an individual who does great things and does these other things that we absolutely rightly condemn, that's complicated. That's complicated. And anybody who says we're all one thing is lying. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't measure someone by the worst thing they've done, just like you can't measure them by the best thing they've done. There's got to be some kind of of medium uh, there. Um, so, I mean, I know this is a lot to ask, but ultimately, what is the legacy of Jim Brown? You can say as an athlete, as a person, as an activist, as an actor, what, what is your main takeaway from his life and legacy? Hmm. I know um, this might not be exactly what you're looking for, but for me as an individual – his legacy is you could even be Jim mother effing Brown and capitalism will do no favors for black America. That to me is a leg as a legacy worth learning is that Jim Brown put his chips in with the idea that, uh, that this country would allow black people to build economic wealth as a way to challenging racism. I think stories of places like Tulsa, the Tulsa massacre tell a much different story, but I also think, and a lot of people talk about Tulsa as a way to make that point and other independent black hamlets, other black wall streets in the United States that were destroyed through violence. Uh, but to me, Jim Brown's life tells that story in an even much more poignant way, because it's not like there was a figure in Tulsa who earned white America's, if not love at the very least respect and people might have hated Jim Brown, but they respected his ass. You know what I'm saying? I should say that's a disrespectful. I'm sorry. They respected him, not his ass. Sorry. I'm just talking too fast. But they, they sure. respected him. They respected him. But even with that respect, even with that fame, even being James Nathaniel Brown, the doors were still closed. His fame could open them. Perhaps money could be accessed here and there. But if you're talking about a community-wide shift, not there. Yeah, I think we we can both agree that this liberation, racial, you know, moving to a post-racial society, whatever liberation is not going to happen through capitalistic means. It's not going to happen through, uh, you know, these traditional means. It's not going to happen through the system that was actively holding him and folks like Joe Lewis down and so many other black athletes Um you know, we talk about LeBron a few times and, you know, even this guy, superstar athlete, billionaire, maybe one of the most famous people on, on the planet can still have his property defaced by a racial yes. slur that's hundreds cool. of years old. And it'll still have the same impact. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll jump on LeBron, too, there uh, or jump on the example of LeBron. It's like there's only so much an individual can do. Like, think about the amount of amazing like effort, money, 
that LeBron has put into making that uh, promise school uh, in Akron, Ohio. So much work went into that. So much money went into that. So much heart went into that. And that's one damn school in Akron, Ohio. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's like these things require Marshall Plan levels of economic intervention. And this country is not going to do that. Definitely not. So thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. I know we went over time. Thank you so much for for hopping on and responding to my my Twitter DMs to talk about about uh, Jim Brown. So thank you again so much for your time. Yeah, I just want to end with one last point, Khaled, is that uh, I wasn't too excited about doing this interview and it's nothing personal. It's just because I've been doing a lot of Jim Brown interviews and they tend to go a place that's depressing or confusing or the host doesn't know their stuff and it's frustrating. And this was just really fun for me. And it was in a lot of ways like healing for me to talk to you about this. So thank you. Thank you. That's, that's an honor to hear. Like I said, you know, before we hit record, you're an inspiration to me in wanting to talk about sports and sports history and uh, through the lens of social justice. And uh, yeah, I'm truly honored and, and blessed that you were able to, to make some time Thank for you us so today. Much. Big shout out once again to Dave Zirin for jumping on the 4040 Vision podcast and talking about the life and legacy of Jim Brown. You can find Dave on Twitter at Edge of Sports. And of course, you can find his Edge of Sports podcast anywhere that you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to check out thenation.com and especially the sports section, where again, Dave is the editor. Thank you all for taking this journey with us, and we appreciate every single view or listen to our content. Please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast, and make sure to check us out on most of the social media platforms at 4040 Vision Pod. Peace out, y'all.